Well, good morning, and good to see you. And I guess to some of you, I'm saying Happy New Year. If I haven't got to say that to you yet, glad you're here. And as Jake said, if you're new to the area, new to Greenville, or if you've been here but you're new to downtown Prez, we want to say a special welcome. If there's anything that we can do to be helpful, answer questions about our city or our church or where the coffee is or whatever, uh, please let one of us know. We'd love to be a resource for you, but we're glad you're here. My name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Jake Patton, another one of our pastors that was leading us in worship. We are going to be turning our attention this morning to the book of Acts. This is the fifth book in the New Testament. It comes after the four Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. So we're going to look at the very first passage, chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow where I am in the bulletin there. Several years ago, I had the privilege to visit Switzerland for the first time, the city of Geneva for the first time. And I got to worship at a church that was a, it was a hot spot in the Protestant Reformation. It was St. Peter's Cathedral in, uh, in Geneva. John Calvin ministered there. Other famous figures ministered there. But I heard several talks and sermons. But I heard a lecture by a theologian. Most of what he said, I don't recall. But one thing he said in his talk has stayed with me. I'd never heard anyone say this. He said that at one point in European history, in churched areas, there was a day on the calendar that was as big a deal or bigger than Christmas, and it was not Easter. And it wasn't any of the saint days or saint feasts. You know what day it was? Ascension day. The celebration of, of Jesus ascending into heaven at the end of his earthly ministry. Think about this. Think about, you know, there's so many different Christian traditions. There's so many different denominations, and you've probably seen a variety in your own experience. So many different ways of approaching the Bible and beliefs, but what, pretty much most of the Christian church agrees. If you want to know the irreducible, orthodox core of Christian belief, it's, you could say it's the Nicene Creed. It's a creed that's over a millennium and a half old. It's actually older than the Apostles' Creed, even though that's named like it's older. The Nicene Creed is from the 300s. When the people that crafted that creed boiled down all this stuff in the Bible, all this theology to kind of the irreducible things, one of the things they included and is included in the Apostles' Creed is that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This is one of the irreducible things. Why? Why would it be so important for people to know that? As important as the cross and the resurrection. Um, what I want to try to do is, is to chip away at an answer to, to that question. We're diving into Acts. And th- this really is an important, you might say, a bridge in the New Testament. Because if all you had were the Gospels, it would really be hard to understand all these letters in the rest of the New Testament. Because you just kind of got like... Jesus and his people in a pretty small part of the world. And then all of a sudden you've got these letters going to different parts of the globe, different parts of the world. Acts explains how that happens. It explains the the spread of the good news of Christianity into the world. And interestingly, Luke, and this is the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote Acts. And really it's, it's like Luke part two. He writes it that way. He, be, he ends his Gospel with the ascension. And then he begins the book of Acts with the ascension. Why would, he, why would he frame it that way? 
Why would he frame the, the account of the spread of the gospel around the world, the ministry of Jesus Christ with the ascension? Why is this so important? Well, let's look at this. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And he addresses this to the same person that he addresses his gospel to, Theophilus. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for uh, the sunny day. Thank you for warmer temperatures. Thank you for uh, still a somewhat new year. Thank you for worship. Thank you for this place to come. Thank you for safety. Thank you for the comfort with which we gather. And Father, for many of us, we are limping in. We're limping in because we are sick or we're sad or we're cynical or we're tired or we don't believe. And so, Lord God, again, to you we turn and we ask that in whatever state we come that you open up our ears and open up our hearts you give us your face, give us your word, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Something I want to start off thinking about as we're sitting here in Greenville, downtown Greenville, we're accustomed to the presence of lots of wasps in the upstate and in Greenville. And I don't mean the bugs. I mean white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Uh, we are accustomed to the sight of, if you go into one of these old churchyards like Christ Church or the um, I think it was Spring, Springwood, is that the name of the, the big one downtown? Lots of British names and Scottish names and mix something and, and, uh, and, you know, and other backgrounds too. But we're accustomed to the sight of that in 2017. Now, 200 years ago, if you were a Cherokee or a Catawba, would you be accustomed to that? No. Very, very much not so. 
things happen that change that so that now that's commonplace and we, we, we assume that. Now, I want you to think about this. Christians talk and sing about and preach about and remind each other about. Uh, one day, people living forever in the presence of God, being in heaven, in God's very presence before his throne, not just as souls, but as bodies too. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we talk about at funeral, that he will raise real flesh and blood people, and they will live with him forever. We are accustomed to the thought of not just souls, not just spirits, but like flesh and blood, hair, eyes, hands, feet, living in the presence of God. Now, thousands of years ago, if you had asked, let's say, an angel, does that make sense to you? I don't have a verse to back this up, but I would just, based on biblical themes, I'd have to believe that a holy angel would say, no, that cannot happen. They are the ones who disobeyed. They are the ones who sinned against the living God. They, they used their hands and their feet and their eyes to sin against him. This is the throne room of God. We haven't sinned. We serve him timelessly, but we can't even look at his face. No, they, they can't live in his presence. But, but we traffic in this talk of like people in their bodies living in the presence of God. How, how did we come to do that? And what I want you to, to start soaking in this morning, and maybe you've thought about this, but it may be the first time you've ever really sat with this for a little bit, is that the answer to that question has everything to do with the ascension. The rising up, the physical ascent bodily of Jesus from the earth back into his Father's presence in heaven. Now, again, we're in the book of Acts. This is the very beginning. You could argue that Luke structures his writings with the ascent of Jesus. Luke, the gospel, kind of has a part one and a part two. And the divider is a reference to Jesus ascending. That he starts to go to Jerusalem. And he's going to go there and he's going to ascend to the Father. The gospel ends with him ascending to God. Acts begins with him ascending to God. Why is this so important? Now, I've got to jump out of here for just a second, and then we're going to jump right back into Acts. But um, last summer, downtown Prez, we did a series on a portion of the Gospel of John. And it's this portion, it's, it's just hours before Jesus is going to be taken into custody and then crucified the next day. It's called the Upper Room Discourse, and just all this stuff, all this doctrine and heart and outpouring comes out of him to teach his disciples. One of the things that Jesus really harps on in the upper room discourse, is he says things like, you, okay, you apostles, you are in me, and I am in you. Abide in me. Live in me. Remain in me. Now, this is a different kind of language than just abide in my teachings or follow my, my doctrines, follow my dogma. He says, I am in you, and you are in me. Then you go to the rest of the New Testament. And Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament, he writes about this constantly. When you read the letters of Paul, this phrase that Paul keeps using is, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in him. Now, I, I don't have the time to try to explain this. I'm just going to state it, is that the New Testament makes a big deal out of this thing that Christians call, theologians call, union with Christ. 
And it's so hard to explain. It's so hard that usually the Bible uses metaphors to convey it. Christ is the head, we are the body. Christ is the vine, we are the branches. Christ is the bridegroom, we are the bride, and they are one, united. But here's what the New Testament gives to us, is that when God works in a person's heart, when God, like, reaches a man or woman, and he gives that person ears to hear, he enables that person to just hear him and trust him and believe the good news. He doesn't just say, okay, great, now, at the end of it all, you go to heaven. He opens their eyes. They have new life, but he comes to live inside them and he unites them to his son so that you can say what Jesus has, believers have. Even though he's God and we're not, what he has, they have. Now, I want you to take that doctrine. It's all through the New Testament, union with Christ. And I want to come back to this passage. Why is the ascension such a huge deal? And let's answer it this way. The ascension changes everything because we, now I don't mean just human beings in general, believers in Jesus Christ. The ascension changes everything because we are in him and he is now in us. The ascension changes everything because we are in him and he is in us. Now let's, let's dive into the passage We're in him. Verse 9. The ascent says that when he had said these things, and by the way, I wish that uh, I could preach a whole second sermon about the 40 days in between Jesus' resurrection and the ascent. There's just a few references to it in the Bible. But he poured into the apostles. He taught them. He taught them about the kingdom of God. It says on one occasion, he appeared to 500 people at one time. All these eyewitnesses running around. Not a myth. But that's another sermon. Verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And they were gazing into heaven. And all that language of they looked, and their sight, and their gazing, that's Luke saying, this is not a myth. I went around to all these eyewitnesses and I talked to them personally. This was done publicly. These men saw this happen. He ascended. Where? Where did he go? The passage says it. The creeds say it. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. Now, if that's all we knew, that would be incredible. I mean, we just sang about it. You think about... As a person who disobeys God, as a person that lets God down all the time, as a person that lets family, friends, co-workers, neighbors down all the time, people who aren't what we're supposed to be, what did we just sing about? When Satan tempts me to despair, and some of you have never felt that, and some of you have. Like, will I ever change? How could God like much less love someone like me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and what? I see him there, right beside the Father. Jesus is at the Father's right hand. Now, that's great. But then the New Testament says this, because we are in him 
And because he is at the Father's right hand, that means we are there too. And I'm not speaking in the future tense. Not just we will be there too. Paul, the apostle, says in Ephesians chapter 2, we presently are seated with him in the heavenlies. And if right now you're going, I don't quite get that, I can't get my mind around it, then all right, then we're trafficking in the the right thing. Because it's mind-boggling. Like I heard one theologian say, if this doesn't boggle your mind, then you're not boggleable. We are seated there too. Now, you know, I try to maintain this sort of Switzerland-like neutrality about regional football. However, I'm going to make an exception. This past Monday night, all the hoopla, lot, so much social media, so many pics about so many things, pics from down there, pics from celebrations all over the place, pics from parades later in the week, all that. My favorite picture from Monday night was not even in the South. And here you have these two Southern teams, I know they're different conferences, I do know that much. Both southern teams, though, but it was a photo. Some of you saw this of the Empire State Building lit up in orange and purple. If any of you scream, amen, I'm going to rebuke you from the pulpit, okay? (laughs) You can amen Jesus, but not that. Empire State Building lit up in purple and orange. Now, you think about, like, all right, now, even Greenville is becoming so much more of an international city. You've got people from different nations, backgrounds. But New York has always been just super multi-ethnic, super international. It is, it is arguably the most important city in the world, and this is this iconic symbol. High, I mean, your eye goes to it in the, arguably the greatest city in the world. It's lit up in orange and purple. There, who knows who saw that that night? There could have been people from Ghana or Venezuela. Malaysia. And I thought about, all right, if somebody from Malaysia was, was with a Clemson fan, and I said, what does that mean? A Clemson fan would not say, it means that Dabo Swinney won. In fact, a, a Clemson fan would not say, it means that Clemson won. A Clemson fan would say, that means that we won. Does that make sense? We won. In a much greater eternal way that cannot be taken away. Um, At the Father's right hand, this was a first, is a body. I heard heard a person say this one time. "If If you could stand the glory, if you could walk up to the right hand of God the Father and extend your finger, it would... You'd hit, you'd stop. There's a body there. There's a man there. Humanity, embodied, has gone into heaven. The first one. That's incredible that that's our great high priest, but he's there and he's still wounded. We sing about this in our hymns. There's an old hymn called um, uh, Crown Him with Many Crowns. And there's a verse that says, crown him the Lord of life. Behold, look at his hands and side. Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. Jesus' body 
Jesus the man ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He still bears the wounds even though he's glorified. Let's go back to angels talking. If an angel said to another angel, what do those wounds mean? You could say it means that he conquered. But that wouldn't be the whole answer. The whole answer would be it means that all his people conquered. That all his people will be here in their bodies. We will be, and in some mysterious way, we are seated with him because we don't just follow him, we are in him. And he's in us. Christ is in us. Um, let's go back to that passage that we looked at last summer last reference to it. One of the things that Jesus said right before he was taken into custody and and killed the next day, he said to the apostles, it's better for you that I go away. John chapter 16, verse 7, it's better for you that I go away. And I have to think they must have thought, there is no way it's better for you to go go away. The best case scenario is that you stay forever. He says, no, it's better for you that I go away. And he tells them why. If I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. I must go to my Father, my Father and yours, and then the Holy Spirit will come. And he'll say things like, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And what does he mean? I'm going away, and I'm going to be with you. You ever heard of St. Augustine? He was a Christian from the late 300s, early 400s. Great mind, great theologian. I just read this this week, and I, I, I thought, this is it's so great to learn from somebody a millennium and a half ago. He said, think of these two verses in the Gospels. One verse in Matthew, Jesus is talking about poverty. And he says, you'll always have poor people with you, but you won't always have me with you. You'll always have poor people with you. You will not always have me with you. But then the last verse of Matthew, he says, I am with you always. I'll I'll always forever be with you. And Augustine is essentially saying, how do you put those together? You put them together with the ascension and the sending of Jesus Christ. I will not physically always be with you. I am bodily going to my Father. But then when the Holy Spirit is sent, I, Jesus, through my Spirit, can be fully with you wherever you are. And can we say this? Jesus, in his earthly ministry, could only be at one place at one time. That's what it looks like to be mortal. A real man. And he physically is seated at the right hand of God the Father for us. But his real presence by his Spirit is everywhere. Because he is in us by his Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit was sent, Jesus is still with us us. And do you know how weird it's like? Christians say things that sound weird and we don't know how weird they sound because a lot of us grew up with this stuff. And we're around Christians all the time. So if we're sitting in a, like, you know, having coffee somewhere downtown, we might say something like, whoo, I don't know what I would do if Jesus didn't live inside of me. And what you don't see is the person behind you, like their coffee cup is halfway up going, uh, that's weird. Why can we say things like that? He's 
physically not here. He's actually really here by his spirit. This is the table of communion. We commune with him and he communes with us. How can that be? He's not physically standing here. By his spirit, he actually is here with us. Treat it joyfully, but treat it reverently. He is here with us. He's still with us, but this is the other thing. He's still working. He's still working. Like the, the, the book that we're just diving into is Acts. The Acts of whom? And we usually call it the Acts of the Apostles. But you don't hear that much about that many apostles in this book. You get Peter, some John, a lot about Paul, mentions James, and pretty much not the other guys. That's not even half the apostles. It's the whose acts are in this book. Really, it's the acts, the continuing acts of Jesus through his spirit, through the apostles and those who believe their message. That Jesus is still at work. Um, Verse 1. Luke writes it very intentionally this way. In the first book, right, the Gospel of Luke. In the first book, oh, the, you know what? Somebody messed me up in the, in the first service. That's why I couldn't pronounce it when I was doing the Scripture reading. Somebody came up to me after the service and said, Hey, did you know Theophilus was, was uh, Irish? I thought, that cannot be right. They said, yeah, it says, oh, Theo, oh Theophilus, like it's an Irish name. And now I still can't say it right because this person has derailed me. Remind me to rebuke them too. All right, first one. In the first book... O Theophilus. Now get how Luke is very intentional how he says this. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. Well, Luke covers his whole earthly ministry. But what's he saying? That was the beginning of Jesus working. But by his spirit, through his people, through the apostles and those who believe, he is still working talked to some of you recently about um, shows you're watching and the Golden Globes kind of kicked up a lot of talk about what people are watching. One show that I know some of you are watching that won some awards is The Crown about Elizabeth II. And uh, Dana and I have seen several episodes of it. Was interested in the episode about the coronation of Elizabeth II. Of course, the problem with the internet is then you start getting online and looking up stuff and you lose like two hours of your life. But, uh, I, you know, you can look up on YouTube the actual coronation of Elizabeth II in the 50s. And I saw something that was not depicted in the show. When right before they put the crown on Elizabeth's head, and right before that, they gave her the, the scepter and a rod, a rod of equity. Right before they gave her those two things, they gave her something else. And if you, if you look up the coronation portrait of Elizabeth II, she, regal, young, beautiful Elizabeth II, she's holding two things. She's holding the scepter... And this other thing, do you know what it is? It's an orb with a cross on the top. And the orb represents the earth. And when this clergyman, I think it's the Archbishop of Canterbury, when he hands it to Elizabeth, here's what he said. Receive this orb set under the cross and remember that the world is subject to the power and empire of Christ our Redeemer then scepter, then rod, and then she was crowned. That it is just slam dunk, 
explicitly clear in the New Testament that Jesus Christ does not aspire to become king. He is now king with all authority in heaven and on earth. Do you believe that? Does the world look like that is true? Does the world look like Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth? And I want to give one more little theological nugget before we're over. Christians have come up with a phrase, and I think it's helpful, and I commend it to you. Christians will talk about, when we think about what does it mean that Jesus is king and that this is his kingdom, the phrase is the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. Jesus is already monarch. He is God, equal in power and glory to the Father. But that's not yet fully manifested. So what changes things to manifest his monarchy? His spirit. His spirit through the word and through us. And and that can look as mundane as someone that you work with that you want to know, that you, you want them to know about Jesus. And maybe they're very resistant to it and very hostile, but maybe over time, because you actually have a friendship with it and because you actually don't treat that person like a project, but you treat that person like a person, that maybe one day you invite them to something. Maybe you invite them to a worship service like this. And they come, and maybe the last person you'd ever think would listen or like it or be open to it, and God opens that man's ears. God opens that woman's ears and gives him or her faith. The kingdom comes. We cannot manufacture, but that is Jesus. Even though he's not physically in sight, that is Jesus still working on the earth. And he works in us. Just out of curiosity, on the way in this morning, I, I made a pass through the downtown public's parking lot, there are still piles of ice. <laughs> it snowed Friday night and Saturday morning last week. It got, it, it's been in the 70s this week. There are still piles of ice. Almost all the parking lots are clear. Sidewalks and pavements are dry, but there are still these little holdouts. That's like our hearts. Even the hearts of God's people, it can be like, wow, there's been a lot of changes here. A lot of changes, a lot of growth, a lot, lot of renewal. But there are these little holdouts inside of us. Jesus still works by his spirit. And he shines the radiance of the Father's glory into those spots by his spirit. And you know what? There can still, in your 30s and in your 60s and in your 80s, there can still be melting. And it looks like we put something to death that needs to die in our lives. Or we apologize. Or we humble ourselves. Because Jesus is still at work. Um, This morning, if you believe in Jesus Christ, it's not just that you one day will sit with him. You are right now seated at the Father's right hand. He is pleased with you. 
And because the ascent meant that the Holy Spirit came, Jesus is still with us and he is still working. We can change. Greenville can change because Christ ascended. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please take your word and put it in our hearts. Let it fall on fertile soil and bear 30, 60, or 100-fold. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.